0: Listener Production
1: The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Hi, I'm Adam Shand and welcome back to The Trials of the Vampire. Last time I delved into the family of Shane Chartres-Abbott, the so-called vampire gigolo who was murdered in 2003. It's an unusual family, you might say. Shane's grandfather began a family tradition of crackpot religion that included worship of the occult and a belief that evil spirits could provoke insanity and even spontaneous violence among the living. As this story unfolds, I can't help but think of this as a dark prophecy for his own family. Shane and his eight siblings from three marriages were raised amid infidelity and brutality. Shane's half-sister, Patina, claimed their father, Frank, had run over his second wife with a combi van, which caused her death five months later. He was never reported to police, much less charged. In the aftermath, Frank with his new wife started a new hippie life in northern New South Wales, where Shane and his younger sister, Joanne, were raised in the mid-70s. The family broke up and by age 13 Shane was on the streets. At age 20 he was a father and he began working as a male prostitute in northern New South Wales. Later in Melbourne he was trained by a master in BDSM. Bondage, Discipline, Submission, Dominance and Sadomasochism. He built a good name in the industry and a clientele that sought his skills, with discretion assured. But everything changed when Shane was accused of raping and mutilating a client, the Tyborn Penny. The evening of August 16, 2002, was a work night for Shane, and he was at home in Reservoir. He was playing chess with his driver, Alec Winters, as they whiled away time before a job. Through the evening, Shane's partner Kathleen, her sister Frances and their mother came and went as the two men played. Shane's dogs were by his side, on guard as always if passers-by came too close to the house. A friendship had developed between Shane and Alec over the chessboard and on the road in the past few months. Being a minder and counsellor was part of the gig, not that Shane needed much of that. Unlike many escorts, Shane was easy to work with. His bookings went smoothly, and if there was a problem, Shane would handle it himself without calling on Alec. He could talk clients around to his point of view. During a job, as he did in chess, Shane could think his way through things. That's why Shane had lasted so long in the industry and why he usually won a chess. At about 11.40pm, they left for the Hotel Seville in South Yarra, where Shane would meet a new regular client, Penny. Alec declined to be interviewed, so I'll tell his story from documents and testimony he gave in Shane's trial. An actor is taking his part. Shane
2: was wearing a long black coat, and I believe grey corduroy pants with black lace-up boots and a dark coloured top. He had his black leather bag with him that he always carries to bookings.
1: In the bag, Shane carried the tools of his BDSM trade. Dildos, whips, handcuffs, lubricants and restraints. He also had two bottles of red wine as requested by the
2: client. Shane doesn't really talk to me about what he does with clients. He will tell me snippets of information but doesn't religiously tell me about every client. I know he specialises in bondage. He's told me that he talks to Penny and they drink wine. They then have sex, then more talking,
1: and then sex again. It was going to be another long booking, their fourth in a month. The first was at Penny's flat in Richmond the previous month, and one hour had stretched
2: into four hours. Shane told me not to wait around long, as he only charges her $200 for however long he stays with her, and that he would have breakfast with her in the morning and catch the train home.
1: Penny told police she was out drinking with friends that night first at a place on South Bank by the river and then at a bar in Camberwell where her flatmate Karen worked. Karen is a pseudonym as we can't name her for legal reasons. She was with a close Thai girlfriend whom she called Jack and another Thai, a man named Chusak. Jack had introduced Penny to Chusak a year before in Bangkok. He called himself a junket representative, a tour guide who brought overseas visitors to gamble at Crown Casino. He was in the country only for a couple of days. By midnight, Penny and Chusack had consumed at least four bottles of beer each and were happily drunk, if not intoxicated. According to Penny, it was Shane who initiated contact that night. He had rung her mobile between 8 and 9 p.m. and suggested they meet later at the Hotel Seville for sex. She agreed and after 11, Penny left Jack in Camberwell and took a taxi with Chusack to the hotel. But Shane and Alec arrived first.
2: We waited in the car, and from our vantage point, we could see who entered the hotel. We were there for a maximum of 15 minutes when we saw two Asian people enter the hotel via the front door. Neither of us were sure whether it was Penny or not, and the fact that a guy was with her threw
1: us as well. Curiously, one of the hotel managers, Don Carrot, noticed a third man with Penny and Chusek as they entered the foyer. He gave a statement to police and we've used a voice actor for his testimony.
3: While she was filling in the registration, I noticed another Asian person outside the door who I thought had arrived with them as well. I saw three of them walking towards the hotel. One of them was walking behind them and did not come into the hotel. He lingered outside while they were in the foyer and left after they entered the lift.
1: The mystery third man was never identified. Shane and Alec didn't notice him, They were more concerned with who had ascended in the lift with Penny. I think she rang Shane and Shane asked who was with her. Penny said it was her girlfriend. Penny's recollection of this call was different. She's not responded to my offer to tell her side of the story, so I'm relying on her testimony and witness statements voiced by an actor.
4: When I got into the hotel room, Shane rang me on my mobile phone and asked me who walked into the hotel. I told him it was my friend Chusack. And that he was
1: geek. It's Penny's word against Alec Winters on this, but whatever explanation she offered did not satisfy Shane. Shane asked me if it looked like a girl.
2: I said no. The other Asian person was taller and wearing a business suit. Shane said that Penny said it was a girlfriend and he was going up to check it out. I said I'd wait for a call from Shane before leaving. About five or ten minutes later, Shane came back to the car. He said it was a guy, and he said, Look, I can hear them arguing on the other side of the door. He was a little bit uncertain about going in there with another guy in the room. So Shane called Penny again. Shane asked, Why'd you say that it was your girlfriend, not a guy? She said it was her friend from Thailand. She told him she was seeing a guy and that he wanted to come and say hello. Penny was telling him that he was being paranoid, and Shane was telling her that he had to be careful. Shane eventually agreed to go back up. He told me if I didn't hear from him to come up, they told me it was room 307. He left the car again and went up to the room.
1: Later, Shane told his counsellor, Sandra Gibson, what had occurred.
5: Anyway, he came up and Penny answered the door and there was a, a what he described as a tall, tallish Thai man in there. And it was really apparent that there'd been lots of cigarette smoke because the ashtray was full and the room was, you know, rank with smoke. Um, And this Thai man just disappeared very quickly, but he said he picked up a really aggressive air about him. He said there's just something about his body language, and he didn't talk to him. And he, he looked straight at Penny and he said, I've never seen Penny's face look like that. You know, she looks very stressed.
1: Penny's version of this meeting was less dramatic.
4: About five or ten minutes later...
1: After their last phone call...
4: Chusack and Shane said hello and Chusack left. I asked him to stay and have a drink with us, but he just left.
1: Chusack's exit seemed to allay Shane's concerns. He called me within four or five minutes and told
2: me everything was okay. I asked him if it was a girl and he said it's a guy, but everything is okay.
1: Alec drove down to St Kilda Beach and went to sleep. He had nowhere else to go as he was living out of his car at the time. Shane had previously told him that if he got another job, he would ring Alec to come and get him. He'd go to the job and then he'd return to Penny afterwards. But Shane didn't call and they didn't speak until the following night. Yet according to Sandra Gibson, Shane still felt uneasy.
5: So Shane went in and they, he said, you know, like we just did what we normally do, but I could pick there was something wrong with Penny. She just wasn't a normal self. She said she was going to drop an E. Um, he didn't. Um, so she took an ecstasy pill? Took, yeah, took, uh, took an ecstasy. And he said, you know, that calmed her a bit.
1: Penny did not mention any drug taking in her statement to police. In fact, her statement is strikingly deficient of details of any kind from about 1230 a.m. on the night.
4: After this, I don't remember much. I only remember a little bit. We drank red wine together. It was wine that Shane had brought with him.
1: We know the wine was opened after 1am when the night manager Andre Walker did a routine check of the third floor of the hotel. Soon after he returned to the front desk, it appears that Shane called down to reception for wine glasses and a bottle opener. A voice actor is playing Andre. An Australian looking guy opened the door. He was about the same height as me and had long
0: mousy colored hair. As i recall, he was dressed, he was very calm and polite. There was nothing out of the ordinary about him, I didn't see the Asian girl. I told him that he had to use the bottle opener straight away, as we only had one. He then repeated this and I heard the Asian lady talking, telling him that next time they would go to a better hotel. He returned shortly after with the bottle opener, and I returned to the reception desk.
1: Now remember this bottle opener because it'll be important later on. It's called a bar mate, or a waiter's friend. A tool you'll find in just about every pub, hotel or restaurant. It consists of a curved stainless steel handpiece into which folds a corkscrew and a bottle opener. It's got a small blade at the other end for removing the foil from wine bottles. Penny had no recollection of Andre Walker bringing the bar mate to room 307, but we do have other witnesses to help create a timeline of the night. Penny was sharing a flat in Richmond with a woman named Karen, who we met earlier in this episode. She was working at the bar where Penny and Chusack went for drinks. Karen told police she got home at about 1.30am and she called Penny to see where she was.
2: She told me she was at the hotel with Chen. We were just talking and she put Chen on the phone and I talked to him. He told me his name was Chen and that he has a son the same as mine. He told me that he was married when he was young 20. And suddenly, Penny grabbed the phone of Chen. She told me to shut up, and I hung up the phone because I was upset. She rang me a minute later and apologized. And we were laughing again, and I told her to have fun and have a good night. I went to bed at about 15 minutes later. Penny rang my home phone and told me that Chen liked the sound of my voice, and that I seemed nice, and that he wanted to talk to me. I told her I didn't want to talk to him and told her I would see her
1: tomorrow. There seemed no hint in these exchanges of what was alleged to come. Around this time the first bottle of red must have gone down because Shane rang reception to request the bar mate again to open the second. I went up to the
0: room and again the Australian guy greeted me. I'm sure he was still clothed. I told him to hang on to the opener and return it in the morning. I didn't think there would be any need for it given the late hour. I don't recall seeing or hearing the Asian lady.
1: Sometime later, General Manager Don Carrot noticed the bottle opener from the bar was missing.
3: I remember reading on the night report that Andre had noted that room 307 had borrowed a bottle opener from the bar. I haven't seen that bottle opener since that night and I just assumed the police had taken it with them. The
1: one that is now in the bar came from the conference room or bar on the first floor. Again, things seem quiet and convivial in room 307. In early 2003, Shane told Sandra Gibson there was more talking than sex going on.
5: He said, when we spent a lot of time talking. He said to me, I kept asking her, what's wrong? You're just not yourself. And she actually wasn't interested in doing what they would normally do. Like the BDSM? Like, yeah. Like, in the end, she disclosed to him that he, he shouldn't really be here. That he was being recruited for a snuff movie.
1: A snuff movie is an underground sex film, often thought to be mythical. These films, if they exist, climax with the star's actual death.
5: You know, like, she owed a debt through, um, because she'd been recruited through a a major tiring, through the casino. Um, And Shane had said to me that he had been to the casino a number of times himself. Um, had met her there and had met some other friends of hers through the casino but he just said no I've been there I've been there a few times and I I know what was going on there and he certainly met some of her other Thai friends yeah and he said I I thought she was just kind of you know weaving a bit of mystery or something or just kind of having me on like just being bizarrely funny or something Mm. but um, I, he said I knew because I looked at her and I could tell that, nah, she meant it. It was, this was for real. And she said, uh, you know, you've got to go because someone's coming back at, at a certain time to ensure that that was going to happen. And Penny's role that night was to get Shane there so that that whole stuff, movie thing could happen. And Penny fell asleep, it must have been like very early hours of the morning. And he said when she fell asleep, I, like he said, I,
1: I left. According to Sandra Gibson, Shane seemed unconcerned that the producers of the snuff film might return anytime soon. He took his time leaving, waiting until Penny was almost asleep. Shane told his partner Kathleen Price that when he left the room, he heard Penny say... You
4: should go home to your wife and dogs.
1: This was at 5am, he said. Kathleen Price told police she woke up between 5 and 6am and called Shane on his mobile. He didn't say where he was, only that he would be home soon. A voice actor has narrated her statement.
4: He was home not long after that. There was noise in the background where he was. It could have been voices or the telly. When he came home, I was awake. It was still dark. He didn't have a shower, he just came to bed. He came to bed wearing parachute pants and a long sleeve T-shirt. He does this as it's really cold at our house. We pretty much went straight to sleep.
1: Checkout time was 10.30am. At 10.45, two rooms were still occupied, 5.03 and 3.07. Manager Don Carrot called 5.03 and the guest told him they were checking out soon. He got no answer from 3.07. And so he went up and let himself in with the master key.
3: At first I thought the room was empty and then I noticed that the curtain was damaged and that there was no bedding on the bed. I then noticed a pair of shoes or boots, I think they were, between the ensuite and veranda door and there was a jacket hanging on the chair by the table. I walked towards the shoes and looked in the ensuite and found a woman naked in the shower on top of all the bed linen. There was some blood around and her face was puffed up and swollen and she looked as though she'd been assaulted. Whilst looking at her, I noticed that she was breathing and she was on her side, so I didn't touch her. I quickly left the room, at which time I noticed there was some blood or something on the carpet as I walked towards the room door. I came down to reception and rang triple zero and told them what I had found and requested police and ambulance.
1: Let's go through the first hours of the investigation right after this. Let's get back into the timeline. Hotel manager Don Carrot has called the police and paramedics. At 11.50 a.m., Constable Michael Harris from Paran Station and another uniform officer were the first police in room 307. Paramedics were working on Penny in the shower recess. A voice actor was playing Constable Harris. I observed a female now known as who was naked and lying in the shower. She was curled over and making groaning noises. Bloody towels and pillows surrounded her. The ambulance officers stated that she had serious head injuries. Her face was bloodied, her left eye was badly swollen. She had blood bubbling from her mouth and she was not responding. There was no bed sheets or pillows left on the bed as they were all in the shower. The room smelt heavily as cigarettes. The curtains looked to have been pulled from the hinges as they were not hanging straight. The mattress had been pushed slightly off the bed and there was blood smudged on the far wall near the bed. At 2.30 p.m., senior constable Philip Stevens of Forensics began a detailed description of the scene, including these observations narrated by a voice actor. In the northeast corner of the bedroom was a table. On top of the table was the room key, a television remote, two wine bottle corks, and two wine bottle cork seals. What was missing was the bar mate the corkscrew and blade that I referred to earlier, which the night manager had left with Shane at about 2am. And curiously, the two empty wine bottles don't appear on the meticulous inventory either. The barmaid interests me in particular. Medical staff told the police Penny's assailant used an implement, possibly a pair of pliers, to partially amputate her tongue. A small blade had been used to cut her nipples. Shane wasn't previously known to carry pliers or a blade in his BDSM kit bag. It wasn't part of his act. So of the items in the room, that leaves the barmate as the most likely implement of torture. I think you could possibly grip someone's tongue with it, using the corkscrew against the stainless steel handle as a crude vice. But you'd need two hands for the task, and the victim would have to be out cold or restrained in some way. And Senior Constable Stevens did find evidence of bondage. Just a warning here. There are some pretty graphic descriptions of the injuries and the scene coming up in the next couple of minutes. The double bed was unmade with only a mattress protector fitted. The southeast corner of the mattress protector had been turned over itself. Under the turnback portion was a cardboard tube bearing the brand name, Koban 3M. 3M Koban is a kind of adhesive bandage. It's well suited for bondage and discipline because the tape only sticks to itself and not to skin or hair. On the floor was a beige colored blanket. Under the blanket was a piece of condom material and a piece of red thread. On the bathroom vanity unit police found three glass tumblers, two wine glasses and a single strand of hair. On the floor of the shower recess were three towels, two bed sheets, one pillow and one quilt. These items were wet and stained with blood. Also on the floor was a clear glass bottle with a wire restrained stopper and a black coloured lady's shirt. In the bin under the vanity was an unrolled condom, which did not contain any semen and also a used tissue. Later, Penny told police that a number of items were missing from the room, including her handbag with credit cards, her pants, underwear, and a mobile phone. She was taken to the emergency department of the Alfred Hospital, which was just across the road. Police described her injuries as life-threatening and included partial amputation of her tongue, extensive facial swelling and bruising, lacerations to both nipples, a bite to her right thigh, scalding to her right hand and buttocks, and blunt trauma to her vagina and anus, evidencing penetration to both those areas. A forensic medical officer examined Penny at 6.12pm and noted she was unable to speak due to the injuries to her tongue. But she confirmed she knew who her attacker was. The examination also revealed bruising and abrasions to Penny's neck, suggesting that she had been strangled. There were also signs on her wrists that she had been restrained. There were carpet burns on her right hip and thigh. Perhaps she was dragged across the floor. She also had a fresh puncture wound on her arm, which could have been from a medical procedure or from the administration of illicit drugs. A picture of what happened to Penny was now emerging, despite her inability to help. She only regained consciousness when she was in the hospital. She underwent surgery to repair her tongue and spent the next 17 days there. She could not remember exactly how she'd been injured, she told police. She had no memory of anything beyond 12.30am. Despite this, she had no doubt who was responsible.
4: On the night, the last person I remember being in the hotel room with was Shane. I did not arrange for anyone else to come to the hotel, nor did I let anyone into the hotel room. I know for a fact Shane did this to me because he was the last person in the room.
1: The hotel staff could not recall seeing anyone else entering the hotel through the foyer in the early hours of August 17. The front door was locked from 11.30pm until 6am, which meant any visitors had to be let in by staff. But that wasn't the only way in, according to Andre Walker.
0: There is a rear stairwell fire escape. This door is supposed to be alarmed, however I believe it is broken. On this night, I did actually speak to another guest who was seeing off a guest of his, and they were using this entrance. From my position at the front reception, I can't see this entrance or exit.
1: This is significant, suggesting it was theoretically possible for someone else to enter or exit the hotel without being seen. It also sheds a sliver of doubt over Penny's account, If she had no memory after 12.30am, how could she be sure that Shane was the last person in the room? It's issues like these that help Shane's supporters maintain their belief in his innocence. So, was this a BDSM session that got out of control? I get it, some people might want to pay to be assaulted and tortured, each to their own, I suppose. But the injuries to her tongue are off the scale of normal, even in the bizarre world that Shane inhabited. Yet putting aside the tongue for a moment if you can, if Penny didn't want this kind of treatment, why did she engage the services of a BDSM specialist? I also ask myself, why would an attractive woman, herself a former sex worker and stripper, need or want to pay for sex? She had no shortage of male interest since coming to Australia in 1995.
4: Before coming to Australia, I worked as a prostitute in Thailand. That was 10 years ago for one year. For five years, I worked as a stripper in Russell Street, Melbourne. I gave up stripping two years ago and I had been working in an old people's home in Kew. About four weeks ago, I rang up for a male escort. I got the number from the yellow pages. I rang because I am single and I was horny.
1: Penny had recently come out of a long and turbulent relationship with a man named Mark Adrian Perry, who also used the alias Mark Andrews. It appears they were still in regular contact. According to phone records I've obtained, Penny received a number of calls and text messages on the weekend of the attack from a mobile service registered in the name of Mark Andrews. On the Friday night, there was a call at 6.01pm that lasted more than a minute, then a text message at 7.22pm while Penny was at Southbank, then a call of 18 seconds at 10.51pm while she was at the Camberwell Bar with Jack and Chusack. The following morning, the calls from Mark Andrews' service resumed at 9.57am, then again at 10.06 and 10.51. There was a break until the evening when there was a burst of calls. 6.49pm, 6.52, 6.53 and another 30 seconds later. Two more calls came after 10pm. Most of the calls, except the first couple, were each only a few seconds long, suggesting they went unanswered or to voicemail. When asked about the call activity on her phone over that period, Penny claimed not to recognise that number. What's more interesting is that Shane claimed to have spoken to Mark Perry on the night of the attack. Penny didn't mention this or any of these contacts and so police didn't speak with the owner of the phone either. The outcome of this story might have been different if they had. Investigators would not learn the full extent of the relationship until 2009. The five years Mark and Penny spent together began in a strip club in the city. In
4: 1996, while working at... I met a person I know as Mark. I knew him for a couple of years before I found out that his surname is Perry. I also knew him as Mark Andrew. He was a customer and I would dance for him for money. When he met me, he told me straight away that he was a drug dealer. Many years later he became a cocaine dealer. After a few times he asked me to meet him outside the club. The first time I said no and then after that I did go out with him dancing and partying. I then started to see him more often and I was thinking I was having a relationship with him. This became a sexual relationship. Not long after that I felt like I was in love with him.
1: Mark Perry was a man on the move. A few years earlier he'd been working security at a suburban hotel but now he was fast becoming a player in Melbourne's drug scene. An arrest for drug trafficking in the late 1990s did little to slow him down. He was ambitious and building his network in a city awash with party drugs at the time. To Penny, Mark was good company and very free with his money and drugs, supplying her with cocaine and ecstasy.
4: When I was first going out with him, it was the first time in my life I have taken drugs. He gave me ecstasy and we had a lot of fun. I didn't even know what ecstasy was and he told me to try it.
1: The stripper took to Mark's drug-fueled lifestyle with gusto, but in 2000 the pace of this new life and the uncertainty of their relationship took their toll.
4: I had a breakdown from taking too much drugs and the relationship with Mark was always up and down. I was working as a stripper. I may have looked like a slut in my job but I was very loyal to him and he knew that too. I did not fuck around. Mark was right into drugs and he had many girls, always Asian.
1: Penny kept hoping that Mark would give up his drug business and start a family with her. But if anything, his life of crime was just ramping up.
4: It was no hope and I was stupid thinking that he could live a normal life. I didn't realise that he was full time with his drug dealing. I thought he would move on but he didn't.
1: In December 2001, with her relationship with Perry in ruins, Penny returned to Thailand for six months. During this time, she met Chusak, the man who accompanied her to the hotel on the night she was attacked. When she returned to Melbourne in May 2002, she caught up with Mark a couple of times, but only as friends, she claimed in 2009.
4: When I came back to Australia in May 2002, I started to think very silly things like I had always been faithful to Mark and being upset, I wanted to be different. I wanted to be not a good girl. By this, I mean I didn't want to be in a relationship with a man to have sex and not get intimate with somebody. I didn't realize that I would pay a huge price for having sex with a monster.
1: On the next episode of The Trials of the Vampire, Shane is charged with raping Penny. His supporters rally, but even their confidence in his innocence is shaken by what the cops uncover. Shane must explain some bizarre and highly suspicious conduct after he left Penny in the Hotel Seville in the early hours of August 17, 2002.
5: At about ten past six, the hostess asked me if I was interested in a bondage booking. He told me his name was Shane. He was very forthright in his request for very specific and extreme bondage role-playing.
1: And we go deeper into the earlier encounters between Shane and Penny in the weeks before the mysterious events in room 307.
4: He then put a pillow in my face. He was doing it softly but held it there for one or two minutes. He then said to me, It's good, isn't it? You don't know what's going to happen to you.
1: The Trials of the Vampire is a real crime production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolich. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby.
5: Listener.